So stay with us. Hi, and welcome to the Arts Report. Was that a, was that the remix there, uh, Anna? What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know. Oh my! Pfft. No, it like uh, it, it cut out for a uh, second there. No. Just the magic of radio. It's the magic of radio. Gotta love it. Something mm-hmm. new every time. Anyway, you're listening to the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM. We are your weekly fix of arts and culture news and interviews. It is January the 25th, and this is CITR 101.9 FM, and we're streaming on the interweb at citr.ca. My name is Adam Janusz, and Anna with one N is here in the studio with me. Hola. And we've got a great show for you. We will talk to Misha Globerman. Oh, by the way, it's all push. It is wall-to-wall push today. Maybe we should just play the, the push music now. Are we ready? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all push today, folks. Wall to wall. Yeah, if you haven't heard, the Push Festival is on now, and it is Vancouver's biggest festival of international performing arts. And it's here from right now until February the 4th, and it has got so much uh, theater, dance, music, um, cabaret, performances, and things that cannot even be defined, speeches, uh, workshops even for artists, that if you haven't taken advantage of it yet, you are a fool. No, uh, you're probably very busy like me, but, um, but you need to take advantage of it and see some stuff uh, before it's over on February the 4th. So check it out. We will help you by telling you about some upcoming shows. But if you want to see what's on stage uh, right now, you should go to their website immediately. Go to pushfestival.ca. So let me tell you what are some of those things uh, that are on today's show. Uh, Turning Point Ensemble, which is um, a ensemble orchestra that uh, focuses on avant-garde, let's say, new age classical music. Is that... Does that tickle your fancy, Anna? Mm, keep going. <laughs> so what they do is they take so, uh, often 20th, 20th century composers instead of, instead of those old stuffy composers like Mozart and Beethoven who have been dead for hundreds of years. They pick people who are often still alive. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Live people music. Yeah, Yay. live people music. There's I love a, that. It's nice for a change. And they do uh, exciting and innovative things with those compositions. So in uh, in this case, they're putting on a show called A Colorful World. And talk about um, surround sound, but they are going to put the orchestra in different parts of the theater. Oh. Yeah. So you'll be able to different. hear it from all angles. Oh. Take that, Hollywood 3D thrillers. Surround 3D sound. Yeah. Jerks. Yeah. Those people. Uh, what else? Uh, we're going to tell you about number two, which is a one-woman show starring Madeline Sammy, and she has won awards all over the place in her native uh, New Zealand for uh, her portrayal of uh, a matriarch, a Fijian matriarch, who decides to choose her successor. She's like, all right, I'm going to kick the can soon, so I have to pick my someone to take my place. And so Madeline plays her, and eight other people. (laughs) And this show's been getting a lot of buzz um, for her amazing portrayal. So that's coming up very soon. 
we'll tell you about that show. We've got an interview with Madeline from uh, Calgary. was where we reached her. Um, they're doing a bit of a tour. And actually, um, I asked her, you know, how, how cold are you right now? Because, <laughs> you know, New Zealand is having a summer right now. So she left uh, summertime oh, paradise yeah. to go to On the other side of ice, the ice winterland Alberta. And uh, she says, it's not, it's not so bad. She says, it's fun. It's fun to dress up. <laughs> yeah, well, once in a while. Yeah, exactly. If she you can get on the plane and leave. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who else? We talked to Michael Greyeyes. And he is doing a lot for Push. Uh, he's doing a show called Almighty Voice and His Wife, which is a, um, a 20-year-old play by Aboriginal playwright Daniel David Moses. And... Um, What's interesting about the show is that the first half is is done in a realistic style about a couple who are in, on the run from the law in Western time, um, Wild West time, uh, Saskatchewan, and then the second half is an absurd white face like vaudeville um, show. Interesting. Yeah, and we'll talk about why they did that. Very well. Are you curious why they did that? Uh, we'll talk about it later, right? Or what? you just want to talk about it now? Talk about it now. It seems like you've got something on your mind. Uh, no, no, no. Um, Come on. Was Saskatchewan once wild? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, even during the Wild West, it was flat and boring. Don't be a jerk. Come on, just play along. Pretend that it was wild. Okay, let's pretend. No, it was wild, actually. Actually, that comes up in the interview. That This was around the time of the uh, Northwest Rebellion. I don't know if you've heard of Louis Riel. But no. he, yes, um, he is, uh, well, in some places, a, a hero. In other, in other groups, a uh, traitor. But uh, basically, he led a rebellion in, uh, in Manitoba against the Canadian government in the 1800s and um so some see him obviously back then he was considered a traitor but uh because eventually they caught him and hanged him well, oh. but uh but nowadays he's considered like you know a fighter a revolutionary you know sticking it to the white man right right mm -hmm. so it was around that time so there, there was some action on the prairies back okay. then good All good right. to know does that pass and your test yes jeez oh, Anna has such rigorous <laughs> rules <laughs> And we'll also tell you about Trampoline Hall, which is a series. Yeah. It's a, a show where experts um, talk about things outside of their expertise. That, I, oh. Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so curious about this. And this is by uh, Misha Globerman, who uh, is from Toronto and is an expert in doing these kinds of um, outside-the-box um, events. You should... Just click on the website. Like just yeah, it's hard going, to explain. Just going into the website gives you a, a gives taste. Gives you a taste of what, what he's that, like. What what? It's just weird. It's yeah, weird. it's just very not a typical Unc website. Uh, unconventional. Very unconventional. Yeah. So we'll um, we'll speak to him. Uh, that'll be our first interview up on the show. But I did want to touch on uh, a dress rehearsal of a show uh, for Push. It's still wall to wall Push. Don't worry. I won't stray from Push, push today. We'll push it real good. good. Is uh, the idiot the idiot the idiot the idiot as oh, they as the, the Irish idiot. say, and uh, this is a show that's happening. It's a co-production uh, by UBC uh, Theater, uh, working together with the Push Fest, and working together with New World Theater. And uh, this group, uh, this epic team, a cast of fifty, um, they're putting on uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's classic novel adapted to theater, The Idiot. And it's playing right now. It started on January 20th, and it continues until the 29th, which is this Sunday. 
And uh, yeah, so Anna, we we saw this uh, dress rehearsal last yeah. week, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. there were okay, there were two things because it was a dress rehearsal. I don't feel fully competent to review it. Yeah, to to pass judgment yeah. upon it. But I did want to talk about uh, a couple of things that 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 really uh, struck me, stuck out. Um, the first one was their use of language. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you'll know what I'm talking about in a second. But, you know, for a lot of it, it's it's a literary treasure that we're talking about, and it's set in the 1800s. So there's an expectation that they're going to have a certain formality to their speech. Right. You know, and, of course, the costumes are beautiful, long flowing dresses, beards and, and top hats and, you know, and uh, waistcoats and things like that. So you, you expect them to say, you know, good evening, madam, and, you know, and speak very uh, formally and, and, and things like that. And they do for the most part. But what was like hilarious like it just really strikes you you know like hits you in the face um like a f- fish slapped across the face um is just like that yeah is the f bombs yeah the f bombs are just uh, like smack you know there's like oh good a- evening sir ah f you yeah <laughs> there's a lot of conventional slurs throughout the but it was at some moments though like they chose the scenes to do it was it a consonant? Well, remember. it's it's funny that you ask because I just have in front of me the review from the Georgia Strait. I see. And uh, what does it say here? It is true of Tate's adaptation. Oh no! Throughout, uh, Tate juxtaposes the 19th century setting with colloquial, even mundane speech. There's a lot of fu's and 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 BS flying around. This choice is arresting, but all of the characters speak in the same voice, whether it suits them or not. And the giddy surprise of the obscenities quickly turns into a stale joke. And that's kind of how I felt, I have to be honest. Um, The first few times that it happens, I was like, oh my god, this is so refreshing. This is so... um, Unexpected. Unexpected. And I I thought it was very... like mature in a way to be comfortable to say oh no we don't like for them not to be stuck in in the formality and and to be like oh no we have to respect this genre and we have to be very professional at all times like no like there are people in this show who are vulgar and they want to express how they feel and so they drop an f-bomb and i thought that was like great good for you guys you don't have to stay stuck up you know the whole time um but then it just kept happening Again and again and again and again yeah. and again. And after a while, it's just like, all right, everybody takes a turn at the <laughs> F-bomb. <you know? laughs> but, but, you know, the F-bombs aside, I did, I did like the, the juxtaposition. I did like the, um, the maturity of the dialogue in that respect, that they were, they were happy and comfortable to flow from formality to colloquialism to... Um, there were some sung pieces, like there was some oh, yeah, the um, some narration that was put in the form of a song, like, she was born in a small town, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. Which I, I think, I now that I think about it, it's, it seems like they were also, well, not making fun of musicals, but kind of when, mm-hmm. you know... A bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, On I the guess, genre. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, let's, let's have, well, they have instruments on stage. Uh, but they, they, you know, they sing about the, um, I don't know, story of the woman and they sing it as if, you know, they were having a random conversation yeah. that kind of rhymes, but it rhymes like if a three-year-old is starting to rhyme something, you know, <laughs> right, it's just right. very playful, playful. Yeah. But yeah, but it's, I think it's a little bit of a mock to musicals and how yeah. everything, when they want to explain something or history of the past or story of the past, 
they, you know, it's that's what musicals do. They put everything into a song, and it's kind of funny and frustrating if you don't like musicals. <laughs> it's very frustrating <laughs> if you don't like musicals. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I got from what we saw from the dress rehearsal. Other yeah. songs. Um, the other thing I wanted to to touch on was, and again, this was a dress rehearsal. I I didn't see anything in some of the reviews that I saw about this, but um, they did this thing where they two characters that were in one scene. And then the same two characters were in the subsequent scene. What they would do is speak, finish their their scene, and then go backstage, and then quickly turn around and go back on stage. Transition. Yeah, transitions. Which which I thought they handled, you know, almost like if they were stuck with that, they handled it well. For example, um, when they disappeared behind the stage, so they would uh, another character would start calling like you know fish for sale, you know like some sort of background noises. No one said fish for sale, but but there was fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm all about fish today. <laughs> um, you know, someone would shout something to to just sort of fill the void and and um, you know paint the the environment and 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 the scene and fill the scene with uh, some speech. So so they dealt with the fact that the stage was bare and there was nobody on it. They did their best to fill that that emptiness but then on the other hand why why do that at all Be, and, and watching them it wasn't too distracting but it really made me see the contrast between shows like uh, that leaky heaven circus for example um puts on um like and sfu theater is another uh, example and they are so not afraid of of uh, avant-garde transitions like they do shows where they never leave the stage and you know one minute you know, a character will be slumped in his chair, you know, having, tripping out on drugs. And then he'll just get up and will start speaking uh, as though he's at work the next morning. And it's like, we figure it out. We understand that yeah, now we, it's the next not, day yeah, and now he's at work. To we don't need him to run leave. off into the darkness. Yeah, like, like a sitcom, you know, they walk in, they walk out and like there's a door somewhere. And there's, yeah, you know, and the audience claps or yeah, laughs when exactly. it happens in the sitcom. Yes. And there was, uh, there was no, was there any... Uh, like, um, how do you call it? Escenografía? Escenografía. No sé. The things on the stage, like... Uh, like what? Stairs Sets? and a roof. A set, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> how is it? What is it in Spanish? Escenografía. Escenografía. It's like... Oh, cineography. Cool. Yeah. Sounds way better than we set. Are set. Sophisticated, yes. Mm. Um, yeah, there wasn't but a lot I don't, of sets. No, but pieces. I don't know. It may, maybe we missed that because it was a uh, dress rehearsal and it wasn't yeah. ready. It was, just, it was maybe, you know, the paint was drying somewhere. Yeah, and they possibly. had to improvise and just walk off stage. And yeah. I agree, I agree. Maybe, and yeah. Because it was pretty now, lavish, the effort mm -hmm. they put into... Um, the, the flourishes, because it's pretty minimal. There wasn't a lot of huge set pieces, but they did a very effectively use, you know, just a chair with some beautiful yeah, lighting. exactly, which is... You know, simplicity. No, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, and it was lovely. It's and they very eco-friendly. <laughs> it's very eco-friendly. <laughs> Save a tree, don't build a set. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the latest trend in theater is eco-theater. and then it will be going into the garbage. That's so funny. But... Um, but yeah, they did have lovely staging, and they used people very effectively, like in the train in the first scene. Yeah, they just had a line of humans in, laid out in different, you know, in that a was that was a great scene. Yeah, in different positions, and and with scene. the help of the lighting, you really understood that they were on the train, that it was packed and humid, and yeah, all that stuff. So it was very cool. All right, so that's the idiot. Uh, check it out. Review, review, review. Ooh. 
It wasn't a review, though. I can't review it. Remember I said? But then I did. Kind of a review. Thank you. Lovely, lovely song. Sort of a review. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and that's playing at the Frederick Wood Theater until January 29th. All you have to go to is pushfestival.ca, and on the left-hand menu, just click on The Idiots, and you'll be able to get tickets that way. Good times. So uh, onward we roll with our Push Festival coverage for this week. And we want to... Oh. Yeah. So I let, just wanted to play that again. Uh, yeah, that's good. We should keep doing that. <laughs> um, in an online bio, Misha Globerman is described as, quote, a facilitator and designer of highly participatory events. And these events include things like hosting unconferences, where they use uh, methods of conference design meant to get people talking to each other and sharing ideas quickly and effectively in a highly decentralized model. So basically, an unconference, but still a conference. Uh huh. Yeah, so kind of turning it upside down. Um, what else does he do? He does something called terrible noises. Beautiful People, a series of participatory sound events for non-musicians, uh, among other projects. He also wrote a book called it's the... the Non-World. Yeah, it's the Unworld. <laughs> Non-Unworld. It's safe to say that Misha Gloverman has an unlife. Ah, oh, nicely put. Clever. So now uh, he's bringing to Vancouver uh, Trampoline, Trampoline Hall. And what this entails is uh, getting a team of experts together to talk about things that they are not experts in. It says here, a lecture series praised for its eccentricity and do-it-yourself inventiveness. Uh, Trampoline Hall's wide-ranging subjects are brought together under one common directive. None of the lecturers are experts on their subjects. Always an audience favorite at Club Push. Trampoline Hall returns by popular demand. Look forward to the lively Q&A. And this will be curated by Lee Henderson, a fiction writer with two books published. And the lecturers include John Anderson, and he's going to talk about Sanskrit is the goober lingo. <laughs> that makes me laugh. Elizabeth Poet, uh, sorry, Poet Elizabeth Baczynski will talk about how memory happens. And Mike Archibald, who's a freelance writer, will talk about the sound of the six-shooter, Western movies of the 1930s. Oh. That. Yeah. That. Boink. And I give the, the ricochet sound? Yeah. Boink. <laughs> yeah, that. They'll do... Should, are you doing this conference? You seem perfectly cool I am definitely not an expert, so I probably should. By the way, uh, Misha also considers himself to be Canada's foremost charades instructor. Huh? Uh-huh. A claim which he says uh, has thus far gone unchallenged. Okay, so in the interview, we talked about uh, doing these these unconferences, and uh, basically, I just kind of asked him if he's against expertise. It's like, what do, what do you what do you hate experts? <laughs> so we talk about whether he hates experts, um, and of course, we'll talk about Trampoline Hall coming to to Vancouver and and what people should expect. But first, because of his unlife, I had to ask him, what did you want to be when you were a kid? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I think. I mean, I think when I was a kid, actually, like I knew a lot of people who did a lot of different things, so mm-hmm. that seemed kind of normal to me. Right. Um, in retrospect, I realized it was not. <laughs> <laughs> well, and 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 tell me about some of the things that you do because um, there is such 
arrange uh, charades. I understand is is one thing that you are an expert at, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but maybe you could tell me about, um, for example, the unconference. What is that? Oh, so one thing that I do is I one of the things that I do on the on the sort of more practical side of things is that I I uh, run conferences and mm. the the kinds of events that I run are these very participatory. Um, sort of self-organized events that are sometimes called unconferences. Right. And the, the idea there is that you get a group of people together and instead of um, sort of having them sit in a room and listen to someone else speak while they sit, in, while they sit quietly and listen, that you, you sort of arrange conferences where people have lots of opportunities to talk to each other and, and meet each other. Right. And how did you come up with that? Well, the unconferences are by no means my invention. I right. mean, that's something that, that, that's something that comes, comes from the world. There's a, a bunch of different sort of things that lead to that. Um, the, the, the unconference term comes out of uh, sort of the, the sort of technology and social media world, yeah. I think, primarily. Where I think, I think in that world, the way people, maybe the way they thought about it initially was it's sort of almost like, kind of like doing a wiki in real life. Like, yeah. rather than sort of writing out all the conference before, you get a bunch of people together and the conference is like a kind of blank, a blank page that the participants build up together the same way you might build up a, a you know a Wikipedia article. Right. It sort of makes sense in sort of the the climate we live in today, where where information is is sort of uh, bouncing around between nodes rather than just sort of a top down approach. I guess right. For sure. Yeah. It's a very. It's a very. I think. I think it's a very timely idea in a lot of ways. People are really. Yeah, people are interested in things being self-organized and in sort of flattened hierarchies and that sort of stuff. And I wonder, so to kind of rephrase the question, I understand you didn't you know, come up with it, but I do wonder how did you um, find it or, or when and how did you decide that this was something that, that you really like as a format? I don't know. I, don't know. I guess I'd been, I'd been doing a bunch of different, for, for me it mostly came out of work that I was doing that was less practical work, that was sort of art and performance work that I'd been doing. And I've been doing lots and lots of different kinds of shows and events that were all about getting groups of people to, to do things together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, you know, in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes it would be um, these you know, participatory sound improvisation events where I'd get groups of people to make noises together, or it would be something like Trampoline Hall. That's a, that's a show, but it's a show where a lot of what happens is, you know, the, the conversation with the audience and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't know. I, I think that that's kind of led naturally into, into doing sort of taking that same interest and applying it to, to more practical stuff, to, you know, dealing with organizations and groups of people and stuff like that. Right. I noticed you say uh, that for art projects as not very practical. How dare you, sir? Art is very practical. <laughs> that's, what makes it, that's what makes it hard. <laughs> right, I guess so. So tell me about um, Trampoline Hall. For people who haven't uh, experienced it, uh, what, what happens there? The Trampoline Hall is a, is a barroom lecture series um, that's been running for just about 10 years in Toronto, and we've toured it around to a bunch of different places. Um, the basic premise of Trampoline Hall is that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a lecture series where lectures are forbidden from uh, speaking on their subjects of professional expertise. Right. So in a, in a typical show, we have three people on stage. Uh, each one talks. Uh, the lecture is followed by a question and answer period that's usually actually, I think, longer than the lecture itself. Uh, so a lot of the show is about you know, getting people asking questions and talking to the lecturer and those kinds of things. Right. And that's the basic thing that happens. In Toronto, we do it in like a... Uh, a club in a bar, uh, and then when we come to Vancouver, it sort of gets fancied up for the push <laughs> festival, and we do it in a we do it in a, in a theater space that they sort of they sort of set up to look as if it were a bar. Right, right. It gets glitzed up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I wonder what happens there. What's the sort of magical ingredient that comes out of this experience that you find? You know, it's like uh, with plays, I ask. 
um, the the directors, you know, what is the play about on the surface, and then what's really going on. So I, I kind of wonder what's really going on underneath the surface. Well, of course, I can't I can't tell you. That's <laughs> a secret. Right. <laughs> I mean, with Trampoline Hall, I think what I think the thing that I think the thing that goes on with Trampoline Hall is that on the surface it can seem like it's about information because it's a lecture. Right. And, and at some small level, it's about information, but much more, it's, I think, it's a, it's a piece of theater. And the theater's about a couple of different things. The theater's partly about um, taking these people and putting them on stage in this, in this sort of odd situation and seeing how different people respond to that. Um, and I think that's part of why the idea was originally to not have people um, be experts, because I think with experts, the idea is, you know, they do this all the time, and when you put an expert on stage and have them speak, what you learn about is about their subject, which is great. I mean, obviously, but um, but at Trampoline Hall, it's more about well, what do you find out about this person um, intentionally or maybe even unintentionally? You know, what do they reveal by by talking about these things? And that's mm. part of the theater, and then part of the theater is about the conversation. is about opening up a room in a way where where you you know where you take a theater space, which is a live space, and you kind of you know you, you turn it into something where people are talking to each other as opposed to just sitting on the you know sitting and listening to what's happening on the stage. Right, right. You know, in everything that you say, I, I, I pick up on that, that theme of a, of a two-way street, right? Or a, a sort of um, round table yeah, yeah. approach, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that everything, pretty much everything that I do, much as all those things can seem very varied and have incredibly little to do with each other, um, you know, it's like, oh, you, just teach, you, know, you teach charades and you also teach negotiation classes and <laughs> you also, you know, run this barroom lecture series. And, but what they all tend to have in common is they're mostly all about how groups of people can interact with each other in different ways. Right. And I wonder, you know, we talked about it being timely, but I wonder if it's also vital. Um, do, do you think that this style of work, whether it's in theater or whether it's in conferences, is sort of like simply the way that things should be done nowadays, that it's sort of obsolete to have a, you know, one-way top-down approach? No, I don't. I don't. I, I think that uh, there's a... Uh... No, and that's always there's always kind of a danger of that. But if you do something like that, that people think it's like you're taking a position against. Right. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like you know, I run ex- a lecture series by non-experts, and then sometimes that's interpreted as meaning that like you know I'm I'm opposed to the idea of expertise, <laughs> and of course I'm not. Like I think it's really good that there are experts, and I think there are times when it's really fun to have. You know, I think that there's, you know, um, in, in a lot of cases, you know, it's it's fun to sit and watch a show and be in the audience. So most of the stuff I do tends to be participatory. But I would hate it if everything was participatory. I mean, I love going to the movies, and I would, you know, I would hate it if I had to do anything to keep the movie going. <laughs> right. So then, what is maybe the the, the chief benefit, uh, at least sometimes, of, of the the roundtable format? Oh, I mean, in all kinds of ways, it can be. I, I mean, in, in it's different things in different contexts. I mean, in the arts, I think. I think one of the things that I found when I was getting started in this stuff was it just seemed to me, and I think this has actually changed a bit in the, in the, in the past you know, 10 years or whatever, but it seemed to me that if you just wanted to think about what you wanted to do with your, with your leisure time or what art was thinking of, there were sort of so many different things you could go and watch or listen to. And I was really interested in the idea of just exploring what there was in terms of having things to do or take part in. Mm-hmm. Rather than just watch, so you know, so I, I did a show in a bar that was a games night, and people would just go to a bar and play games, or or play charades, or go to trampoline hall and be be part of something. And and so I think there's a different set of possibilities to be explored there that are, that I think are really fun and interesting. Right. And in, in in that stuff, I think I'm drawn to them, not so much because I think I just think that there's a lot of unexplored space to work in there. I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff to do. So. Um, 
I don't know. I like what the I, run, I do these classes with improvised music, and I get people to get together and make sounds together. And it just seems like, oh, as a way to give people a musical experience, you know, mm-hmm. a lot less there. A lot less people have thought about how to do that than have thought about how to give people the musical experience of putting on a show for them. So there's just kind of I don't know. I guess I sort of like those unexplored spaces. Yeah, which and for art again, it, it just seems it, it fits well. I think because. You know, there, there's no one answer in art, right? There, there's a hundred different yeah. answers, so it's, I guess it's more exploratory. Yeah. And then in the other stuff, you know, for the conferences side, mm-hmm. I think it's just pretty straightforward. I mean, I guess I think there, I think, I mean, again, I think there's a, there's a place for having speakers and there's a place for all those kinds of things. But I do think there's actually, I guess, a mistake that people often make when they put together conferences, which is that they don't. I think in conferences there really is a point, and people often forget what the point is. And I think that people... <laughs> People go to conferences. I think a huge part of why people go to conferences is because you want to meet other people. Like if you're just trying to, conferences are treated as if they're a place to go and um, receive information. But you can receive information from books, or you can receive information over the internet. You can receive information really well without having to get in a plane and fly somewhere else and stay in a hotel. Right. But what you can really, but what you can really do at a conference is meet other people and form connections with them. And at most, con- but at most conferences, what they do is they sort of treat the information sharing as primary, and the connection forming as this sort of side effect that yeah. you know maybe you know you'll let people meet each other, mingle at lunch or whatever. So you spend sort of, you know, and it's sort of an afterthought. And I think that actually is a mistake. So when I do conferences, what we do is we work really hard to make the connection forming really primary. And the connection forming usually goes along with information sharing, but it's mm-hmm. a different kind of you know. I guess my idea is, like, if, if I organize a conference, when you go to that conference, if I want to make sure you meet the people at that conference you really need to meet. And I think most conferences just hope that will happen by accident, and I really try to make that happen by design. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Well, we have uh, run out of time. Is there anything you, else you'd want to say about Trampoline Hall in particular? Um, Other I, I than go, <laughs> go and see Yeah, it? people should go. It's going to be – <laughs> all, all the lecturers this month are chosen by, by, by Lee Henderson – all local people in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and Lee has, I have no idea really who they are or what they're going to do, but um, the way we always do the show is we have a, we have a kind of curator who chooses the lecturers, and I'm, I'm pretty excited. I, I know Lee, and I like him. He's, he's I think, a really interesting guy, and I, I'm really excited to see what he comes up with. And that is Misha Globerman talking about Trampoline Hall, which is coming to Vancouver for one night, one night only, January the 29th at 7 p.m. Anna, are you going to go? I have to. Yes, I'm going. You have no choice. I have no choice. I want to see what non-experts have to say about non-things. <laughs> about non-things. Awesome. Well, you can check it out at Club Push, which is at Performance Works, over on Granville Island, and that's uh, at 7 p.m. on January 29th, which is a Sunday. So check that out. It is $24, and tickets are available from Tickets Tonight. That's Trampoline Hall. And you can go to pushfestival.ca to get tickets there. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll have an interview with Michael Grayeyes about the show Almighty Voice and his wife, as well as, well as his... Um, his, uh, what do you call it? Give me a second here. <laughs> Keynote manifesto called Staging Ethnicity. So stay with us. Tune in to the 10th annual Homelessness Marathon, a 14-hour cross-Canada live broadcast on housing and homeless issues. Housing is a right. There's no excuse why there should be uh, homelessness, and there's no excuse why people should be going hun- hungry in the city of Montreal. The Homelessness Marathon will be broadcast on over 30 campus community radio stations across Canada. Tune in to your local station from sundown to sunup. 
from February 22nd to the 23rd, 2012. Or go to ckut.ca slash homeless to listen online. For more information or to participate, contact marathon at ckut.ca. I'm here to, uh, to make it known that uh, all peoples, especially the street peoples and the homeless peoples, have a right to uh, mass media and do have a right to say whatever they feel is right to get themselves into uh, better living conditions. You have to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Where else can you see Hollywood blockbusters, midnight cult classics, indie films, live music, burlesque, stand-up comedy, poetry slams, and live sporting events all at your local theater, your neighborhood indie theater that promotes all things cool. This January at the Rio, catch award winners and cult classics alike. David Fincher's take on the international sensation, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, runs nightly from the 7th until the 12th. January 19th, it's a classic double hitter with the boys in the band at 7, followed by My Own Private Idaho. Friday the 20th, the Rio shakes things up a bit with White Horse live in concert. Midnight movies this month include The Shawshank Redemption, The Shining, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and The Rocky Horror Picture Show. For more details on any of these or other events, go to riotheater.ca. And we're back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM and online at CITR.ca. We're on every Wednesday at 5 p.m. And if you miss any of our show, you can catch it again on the podcast, which is available from CITR.ca. Just follow the links from shows to podcasts and then under the letter A for Arts Report. I felt felt like a Sesame Street moment there. The letter A, like Apple and addiction. All right, moving on. Uh, Almighty Voice and His Wife explores issues of colonialism, racism, and the deeply embedded negative assumptions in society. Director Michael Grayeyes is an actor, dancer, and academic. He's also bringing a keynote address to push as part of its Aboriginal performance series. He's the director of Almighty Voice. Sorry, Almighty, yes, Almighty Voice. And we talked about uh, several things, including um, racism and also about how that's explored in Almighty Voice. As well, we talked about the subject of his keynote address, which is um, staging ethnicity. So we talked about what that means. Uh, But first, we talk about the play and uh, what issues are at the heart of it. The the play, of course, is is about um, how how, how people... um, uh, from various cultures, internalize the racism that they experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this particular play, uh, White Girl and Almighty Voice, um, the first act sort of explores their journey as fugitives away from the law. And, you know, the, the racism that just sort of is just present at the edges of their reality, like it's just bubbling underneath the surface. You can certainly feel it and, and they talk about it. But then in Act 2... What Moses does is he drags that racism that was sort of hinted at and, and alluded to and drags it into the front and says, this is actually what we're dealing with. Right, and I so understand two, the second act is much more um, sort of abstract and, and a bit surreal. Is that right? Yeah, it's totally surreal, in fact. Yeah. Um, the second act is a vaudeville show. It's, it's, a, it's a white-faced minstrel show. And in it, the things that sort of are explored is like how, you know, how do we 
understand the white gaze. Like, how, how does that actually operate? How does it affect the people that the gaze is directed at? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, uh, there are times where it's really vulgar, mm-hmm. really incredibly racist, um, really disturbing at times. And I think it has to be that way so that we can really examine something. When you drag something out into the light to really examine it, you know, there's a shock at first. Yeah. But unless you do it, it will just lurk beneath the surface. It'll just hide in the shadows, you know, working its, working its, you know, doing its damage. But what Moses does, he says, let's confront it. Let's confront it as a people. Let's confront it as a community of, of artists, as people, you know, as Canadians. And, and I think that's what makes the play so timely. Right. And I think there must be an element, too, of, of um, you know, to make it so abstract and so surreal maybe helps to um, bring awareness to the fact that sometimes uh, in life there are just surreal and abstract, abstract things you know, going on, like racism itself, you know, you could try to rationalize it, but there's a lot of human behavior that is just inherently, like, silly and weird, isn't it? Yeah. The, the irrationality of the second act, I think it's important because it's sort of, it highlights the things that we think are normal, the right. things that sort of are, you know, are in every part of our day of our life. We sort of are, are brainwashed into thinking that somehow that's acceptable. <laughs> right. And then by making it surreal, by by highlighting it, by exposing it, you go, Wow, you know those are assumptions that we all make, and I'm, you know, like I'm I'm a victim of it too. I or, or I've perpetrated it myself, or I've I've ignored it. And I think that's I think that's the point that Moses is trying to make is that, you know, by going in that route, by making the second act what it is, it exposes everything, and then we have to confront the truth. Right, right, and it requires that sort of shock uh, treatment, right, because it's just so ingrained in all of us, right. Exactly. Interesting. Now, exactly. I um, think. Sorry, go ahead. I, I think, you know, even even it's it's a twenty one year old play, right? But mm-hmm. but the second act still manages to shock. Like I'm <laughs> always surprised. At it. You know, seeing audiences all across Canada that watch the show, and they all have the same expression. They're like, you know, like I I feel like they've seen it all, and then the second act comes up, and they're like, well, okay, I wasn't ready for that. Wow, <laughs> still got it after twenty years, eh? That's it. That's it. Now, we're running out of time, but I want to touch a little bit on the keynote that that you're doing for for Push uh, called Staging Ethnicity. Um, Can you tell me about that? Uh, Yes, I've I've been invited to create and perform a manifesto, um, you know, at the festival. And I'm really excited about this because it's an area of research that, that I've been you know, engaged in for, for many, many years as an actor, as a director, as an academic. And um, it's about staging ethnicity. Like, how do we stage our differences? Mm-hmm. How do we stage the things that people perceive about us? And, you know, in the end, are we, are we, actually, are we actually trapped into a kind of perception and a kind of reading that um, limits discussion? That, that limits, you know, an honest discussion about what, what culture is. And how, how does and, that happen? How does that, that manifest? Is it sort of like stereotypes being perpetuated or, or what? Well, certainly, certainly stereotypes are part of it. Yeah. But, but that's really just like a kind of a symptom of like a larger sort of array of you know, phenomena, like, like, you know, white gaze, male gaze. 
there's all kinds of things in play in our society that that we that we've grown to expect, like for example, media representation, like the kinds of media images that are that are continually bombarding us. It's, it starts to work its quote magic upon us, and we're not even really aware of of how perceptions are created, um, but work on us nonetheless. And and what staging ethnicity is about, what the manifesto is about, is about sort of uh, you know creating room for a dialogue, creating room for an examination of the way that we are manipulated or that we as, as Aboriginal artists manipulate our own material in order to a, you know, achieve commercial success to achieve, you know, more widespread acceptance, etc. So, you know, it's, it's a complex dialogue and I, and I hope that the, that the manifest sort of exposes at least you know, the landscape of the 21st century. I mean, you know, 20th century is gone. 21st is where we're at. Yet we're still dealing with some of the problems that linger from that from that whole era. And that was Michael Greyeyes telling us about the show Almighty Voice and His Wife, as well as the keynote address called Staging Ethnicity. So Almighty Voice is uh, running from February 1st until the 4th. And that is a Wednesday until Saturday next week. And that's happening at Waterfront Theatre at 8 p.m. There's also a matinee. There's also a post-show talkback and, uh, and all that good stuff. So check out more information and pick the show you would like to see by going to either pushfestival.ca or Tickets Tonight. And tickets range from $26 to $34. So um, check it out. It's cheaper if you get them in advance. So do so. And Staging Ethnicity is happening on February the 2nd, and that's a Thursday. That's next Thursday, and that's happening at Performance Works at 6 p.m. And tickets to that are 15 bucks. And again, just go to pushfestival.ca to catch those. All right. So we're just going to keep right on rolling. Now, uh, New Zealand actor Madeline Sammy has won a claim for her portrayal of nine different characters in a show called Number Two which is about a Fijian matriarch planning her succession. The show won the Fringe Fest Award in 2000 at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and Madeline has won the Chapman Trip New Zealand Theatre Award for outstanding performance for her solo work. So I spoke to her from Calgary, where they are currently on tour, and we talked about how to keep the show fresh after doing it on and off for 12 years. And I also wanted to touch on the socio-political aspect of um, being Aboriginal. And, you know, basically those issues, if any, are in number two, since the show is also part of Push's Aboriginal performance series. But first, I just had to ask, how the hell do you play nine different roles? Um, I'm not sure, really. I'm still <laughs> trying to work that one out. Um, no, I, I, just, uh, I just try and tell the story. I think that's what I sort of concentrate on is this, this story and it has to be told through all of these voices and um, that's my job so and so is it and is it through the voice is it through physicality I'm just wondering how you get into it when you're in the rehearsal yeah, process it's, it's through um, it's through both really it's the physicality and the and the voice as well and I sort of find for me I think the voice comes first and then the physicality comes afterwards and I mean, you know, I've been doing this show since 1999, so I can't even remember. Right. I can't even remember how it started now. I can't even remember what I did. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. So yeah. I imagine that these people must feel in a way like, I don't know, like family or split personalities. Yeah, like... they are. There's sort of some, like, some really weird 
personalities that will live in my brain forever. <laughs> and I just will, every every once in a while, someone will say, hey, come to Canada and uh, do some shows and bring those people out again. And I will. And uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's brilliant. Can you uh, tell me about the significance of, of number two? What does that mean? Um, well, number two is actually the, the um, name of the, uh, well, it's the number of the house in the street mm-hmm. where they live. Okay. Um, and it's also kind of a nod to uh, the naming of a successor. You know, you're number two, you're, you're next, next in line, you're next. Because um, that's what that's what Nana decides she's going to do. She wakes up in the morning and she decides she's going to name her successor of the grandchildren. So it sort of has has a few meanings going on. There's probably about eight more meanings um, <laughs> in the play, but you're just going to have to come and see the play to find out. Ah, that, there's, that, there's the catch right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can find some more meanings, please come and tell me. Because, yeah, exactly. Know, Contribute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... And give me a sense of who these these nine some of these nine people are. So you mentioned the the, uh, the, um, the, the main character is the the Nana Nana Maria, whose okay. house it is. Who and she's the one that decides that she wants to have a big feast and have a big fart, um, big party and have her have her family around her. Um, and her, there's her oldest grandson Erasmus, who um, is a security guard uh, slash um, body. Um, doorman, you know, kind of guy, um, and he's uh, living with her at the moment. Then there's Charlene, which is like the oldest female um, uh, grandchild, and she's a bit sort of, she's like the workhorse of the family. She does she does everything for Nana. Um, which one of these characters is, I don't know, maybe not the hardest, or, or but which one of them sort of requires more um, effort from you to sort of um, get it right? Um, I think I think they all do in their yeah. own way. I mean, it's not really about trying to get it right. It's about just just uh, just you know, like just getting the story out there and keeping it flowing and stuff. Um, yeah, I think they all present their own challenges to me. Um, obviously, now they're they're way more in my body and and in my brain. So it's not it's more about keeping it fresh for myself now. That that's more of the challenge. Interesting. Um, so yeah. And how do you and how do you do that? How do you keep it fresh after all these years? Um, well, I mean, for me, keeping it fresh is is taking it to new places. Um, you know, I've never been to Canada before mm-hmm. with the show, or you know, just even in general by myself. So it's it's that that keeps it fresh, like the response from the audience and what Canadians respond to, as opposed to what you know Kiwis respond to or what um, Londoners respond to. You know, it's, that's sort of what keeps it. Um, keeps it fresh and alive for me and, and, you know, just whatever comes out on the night, really. I just sort of try and stay in the moment and keep it. Is there is it different from every audience or do you notice anything sort of cu- culturally among uh, Canadian audiences that, that they, um, something that maybe they react to that other audiences don't? Um, I haven't, I've only done three shows so far, so I haven't really, um, so haven't this- really noticed much of a difference. I mean, the, the, the universal things that most people pick up on are the things that Canadians are picking up on so far. You know, like they're laughing in the bits where most people laugh. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of, I think, I mean, it's it's just, um, it's just, at its core, it's just like a story about family. And I think um, a lot of people, um, regardless of where you come from, recognize um, themselves or their, their relatives or something in the characters of, of number two, so... Yeah. yeah, so there's a certain universality to it. Um, yeah, I think it's yeah. Any story about family is done. I mean, you know, it's a good story about family and the good characters and they're um, 
they're well written and I think people really do identify with with each one of those kind of characters. You right. all know someone with them. Now, that being said, uh, this show is part of the Aboriginal Performance Series um, at PUSH. Mm-hmm. And um, I just spoke to Michael Greyeyes, who's doing um, Almighty Voice and his wife. And uh, some of the themes we talked about was um, about the sort of uh, pervasive, um, you know, whether it's racism or any other issues that Native people face, that about how deeply rooted they are and how... Um, you know, at the core of everything that they sort of lurk in the distance. And do do you have any comment on that? Um, Well, I mean, number two is kind of, I mean, you can see, you know, in Nana, for example, who's Mm. like a Fijian woman that's been living in New Zealand for like, you know, I mean, she's probably in her 80s and she's been living there since she was like, you know, five or six or seven or something like that. And um, you can see in her the way she the way the things that she regards as awesome are kind of like she loves the royal family and she loves um she's got this kind of sense of herself as being a sort of quite regal and um uh you know like this is sort of sort of uh colonial kind of hang ups mm-hmm. with within within a character like Nana, which is definitely something um like an issue with her generation um and then you've got the younger um the younger guys who are who are sort of in, into their rugby and, um, I mean, there's, there's only really, I mean, essentially number two is a story about family, but, you know, there's there's one speech that one of the characters does um, when he's talking about school and um, how to sort of cheat the system and get um, get good marks for an yeah. essay if, if you write about your culture and say it's really important to you and um, talk about gods and spirits and things like that, you know, which is sort of like a, a bit of a, um, you know, uh, kind of joke at that sort of really PC kind of way yeah, yeah. of um, of thinking about um, the the uh, you know foreign people or Polynesians or whatever in, in you know New Zealand or Aboriginal people yes if they if they identify with these spirits and things like that you know which is not necessarily the way um, the way everyone thinks you know what I mean um, mm-hmm. on a on a sort of daily basis. Um, but yeah, so I mean, sort of essentially, there's 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 not a lot of that sort of um, sort of race race stuff going on in number two. It's mm. more about sort of the hierarchy and the family dynamics. Great. Well, it sounds like a very interesting show, and I know everybody here is buzzing about um, about this show, and and can't wait to see you do these nine parts. That's definitely what oh, I'm... cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, coming to Vancouver. I've heard it's an awesome city. It's not true. It's a horrible city. I'm just saying. No, Aikid, uh, that's Madeline Sammy, and she's bringing number two from Alberta, where it is currently playing, to the West Coast, and that is happening from January the 31st until February the 4th, which is next uh, Tuesday through Saturday. And that's happening 8 p.m. all of those nights at The Colch. And there will be a post-show talkback on February 1st, and tickets are a very, very reasonable $16. So you can go to theculch.com, and that's the uh, culture's website, and get tickets there. And, of course, you can always get more information at pushfestival.ca. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to tell you one more thing for Push, and that is a Turning Point Ensemble's work uh, called Colorful World. So stay with us. Are you walking to class? Are you grabbing a coffee? 
Got lunch hour to kill? We invite you to fill the silence of your day with the sound of some live music. Music on the mind? UBC's newest student concert initiative invites the School of Music out of the concert hall into the schoolyard. Ten concerts at five venues on one campus. Let's get music on the mind at UBC. For more information, visit ubcmusiconthemind.com. Sponsored by CITR Radio, Vancouver, BC. And we're back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM. And, of course, we're online, too, at citr.ca. So if you can't find a radio, you can always use your iPhone. Aha. There's a program for that. A tune-in, I think it's called. And you can listen to any local radio station on your iPhone. Um, wait, but that, you, don't need to, you don't need to stream. You can just listen to the radio. Anyway, we're available in many forms. Uh, all right, we have one more story for you, and I should just tell you about it um, right now. It's called Turning, uh, Turning Point Ensemble is uh, combining several works around the central theme of color. The first is Je, Debussy's 1913 orchestral work, which was quite controversial in its day for its portrayal of a three-way romance. Oh, yes. Yes, salacious. Uh, composer Michael Bushnell has worked to compress the work for the smaller Turning Point Ensemble, because, of course, it's originally designed for a full-on orchestra. So we talk about that in our interview, as well as the other two uh, pieces in the project, including uh, works by composer Toru Takamitsu. I hope I got that right. So uh, in the interview, I believe um, we start with some background about Je. Yeah, they had come up with a, a scenario for this ballet, um, which involved a tennis game um, in a park and basically involved two women and a man and a, a lot of flirting going on and ending up more or less in a menage a trois um, with a triple kiss um, in the scenario, which they hoped would scandalize the Parisian audiences. Oh, really? They were hoping for the scandal? Yeah, they were, I mean, they were trying to sell tickets. So. Right. <laughs> they were hoping for a scandal. Um, so they pr- proposed this scenario to Debussy, and, and according to, you know, there are many different stories about this, but he said um, that he wasn't interested and didn't want to do it, and then according to the legend, they doubled his fee, and then he said he was interested and he would do it. <laughs> so he, I think he actually needed the money at that point. Right. But anyway, he so he went straight into it and uh, wrote the music actually very quickly. Um, and basically, what I think one of the interesting things about the music is it really follows the scenario of the ballet. In other words, what you see there, we actually have the rehearsal score that Nijinsky used, and you can see every place is written the sort of the text of the scenario right above the music that's supposed to go with that text. Oh, okay. So it was very much a ballet that, you know, the music for the ballet, which followed the scenario. Right. Um, but what what is interesting about what Debussy did is that because of this kind of scenario of the sort of constant flirting and, you know, one woman flirts with the other with a guy and the other one gets jealous and then he gets diverted and starts flirting with the other one. And there's all this sort of back and forth with never much happening. And the music is kind of like that. It's always sort of going someplace and then switching directions. Right, kind of and teasing. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of teasing. And the music is very, very sort of, it, it's kind of just con- constantly sort of shifts all the time. And it's actually considered, you know, by a lot of um, 20th century composers to be, a, a you know, a sort of a prototype of a more modern style of composition, mm-hmm. um, where instead of having a sort of, you know, 
a theme that develops and then, you know, comes to an end and then you get a new theme. This is just like a lot of little fragments of music that keep on shifting back and forth and kind of pile on top of each other and, you know, reemerge and sort of uh, constantly are sort of constantly shifting around and mm-hmm. what people sometimes now call moment form, where there's not any large scale shape, but it's just a lot of things happening in the moment. Now, I understand that you've made a new arrangement of this. Can you tell me what, what does that mean, to make a new arrangement? Well, the, the original is written for a very large orchestra, um, which is, you know, part of the, 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 you know, what was happening at the time. In other words, they could afford huge, huge orchestras, and it has two harps and even something called a sarusophone, which is a, uh, a newly invented at that time wind instrument. And so nowadays, that orchestra is is so large that you know an orchestra like the Vancouver Symphony would just simply have to hire a lot of extra musicians to perform it. Mm. So it doesn't get done very often. So what I what I've done for this is basically reduce the size of the orchestra, and I would say reduce dramatically. So basically, where where there were four French horns, I have one French horn. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's now down to sixteen players. Now, of course, you lose, of course, some of the impact of the sound when you when you're doing that um, because you don't have that many players. But then again, you're doing it in a much smaller space, so the sound is still actually very, very full. Right, and so basically, that's that's the process is is basically reducing it to a smaller orchestra. I see, and I guess if it allows it to be performed at all, then that's still a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, it is. I mean, that's you know one of the things is is it allows it to be performed. Um, the other thing that happens actually is is that when you have a huge orchestra with you know lots of strings and so forth, there are lots of details that kind of get lost in the in the big mass of the sound. Right. And what I discovered, you know, as I've done this and then heard heard the first reading of it, there are all these things that you never actually hear in the big orchestra performance, because I've been to live performances of this, um, that you hear things that you never heard before because of the intimate detail. Hmm. And, you know, so that little things and, and details that, it, that you know, were, were hidden are now, are now there. So there are some advantages to it as well. That being said, were you worried at all about sort of being faithful or, or maintaining a, a sort of integrity to Debussy's work? Um, yeah, it's a little bit like you know translating a poem from mm-hmm. one language to another. Um, you know, you 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 know that at some point you have to give up something because you know if you have a, a perfect rhyme in French and you're trying to do it in English um, and you can't find the rhyme, you're going to have to either give up you know the words or give up the rhyme, but you can't have both. So exactly. you know that you know that you're compromising from the very beginning. So once you accept that, then you just say, well, I'm going to do my best to bring out you know what I think is important and. You know, not lose sleep over the things I had to throw out. <laughs> right. So you haven't lost too much sleep then? No. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, I, I lose sleep over, you know, worrying about is it going to work or not? You because, sure? of course, you know, the problem is is then if you have some effect that does work for a, a very large, you know, ensemble and I'm trying to recreate it with many, with far fewer instruments and I wonder, you know, is this really going to sound right or is it going to work? So, right. Now, uh, tell me about the other parts of the evening. For example, uh, "Rain Coming." What is what is that about? This um, there are two works by um, the composer Takamitsu, Japanese composer who died, I'd say, probably about ten years ago. Um, and he's probably the, I would say, the foremost Japanese composer of the 20th century in the classical style. Um, and he was actually much influenced by Debussy, um, and and so there's a kind of 
it, you know, you know what they call musical impressionism about his sound. So these are two pieces for large ensemble um, that are, you know, have in their roots Debussy. So it's and they're very again very colorful. Uh, he he loves to play with uh, the color of sound, so it kind of fits in with the the Debussy aesthetic, which is also you know about about colors of sound among other things. And I understand that the orchestra is dispersed. Yes, yeah, with the um, with one of the the uh, the Deb, uh, the pieces, um, it's spread around the hall, and so I haven't actually seen how that works, but that's that's my understanding of the piece, which makes for a very interesting effect, especially in the um, in the Milton Wong Auditorium, which has uh, you know all these balconies and things, so they should be able to do that very nicely. Yeah, talk about surround sound. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And then what's the uh, the third part of the evening? The third part is actually music by Rodney Sharman, who is one of, I would say, one of Canada's leading composers and uh, just a, a brilliant composer, I think. And again, one of the things about the music that, that he does is the, the color of sound. Um, mm. he, that's one of the things he's very interested in. So it, it very much complements the other two pieces, which is why, of course, they gave the, the title of the concert, A Colorful World. And this is basically a world premiere of a chamber symphony um, that was written especially for the ensemble, the Turning Point Ensemble. So it's something that you know no one's heard before and then should be a major event. Well, uh, we're running out of time, but is there anything else you'd like to say, maybe just about the overall sort of tone or feeling of the evening that, that might be a treat for people? Um, I think what's intriguing to me is, is actually the the performance of the ensemble. This is a 16-member orchestra, so it's, it's a very small size you know, in terms of an orchestra, but it's actually much bigger than, say, a chamber music group. So it's kind of a, 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 new, a new phenomenon, phenomenon, if you will, and it's, um, they're just incredible players. Um, um, so they, it, because they rehearse a lot and work together, um, you, get it, uh, you get the sort of intimacy of a chamber music sound along with the you know, huge sound, a bigger sound of an orchestra. So that's, you know, I think they're just an amazing group, an amazing performance. So. And that's composer Michael Bushnell, who's bringing uh, Turning Point Ensemble's Colorful World to the Faye and Milton Wong Experimental Theater, the Gold Corp Center for the Arts. <sighs> Basically, uh, SFU downtown. That's their, their theater with 100 names. Anyway, and that's coming, sadly, only one night. Quiet, everyone. On January the 29th at 8 p.m., Okay, so that's uh, <laughs> this Sunday, one night only. So make sure to check it out and ex- experience the Surround Sound Orchestra. Uh, tickets are $35 and $38, and a special $10 price for students. Did everyone hear that? $10. That's a huge deal. So check it out. All right, we are horribly over time, so we need to uh, wrap up. But if you missed any of today's show, you can get catch the podcast very soon, in approximately an hour from our website. And if you want um, the scoop on a couple of shows that are playing right now that we covered last week, such as The Idiot and Craigslist Cantata, you can check out last week's podcast because those shows are, are playing right now. And uh, they are great. So check it out. Yeah. And that's officially the end of our push coverage for this week. We had an all push show. Um, definitely check it out before the it ends on what is what is going on, Anna? Keep it together, girl. He said, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Um, apparently, that's funny. Um, 
My name is Adam Yanish. Anna is losing her mind. And we'll be back next Wednesday bye at bye. 5 p.m. for more arts coverage. Bye bye. That is not, not the, the right, right music.、One. Turn、That's、it、fun. off. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm out of here. Okay. I quit. Bye bye. 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 Bye b